I'm Greg. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and it's really good to see all of you out here. Amen. We are now going to uh, finish up our series on the beautiful mess that we've been involved in the last six weeks uh, as we're kind of picking apart uh, the Sermon on the Plain found in Luke chapter 6. God's done some really cool things with this series. I uh, think it is so good for us as a body to be getting our minds and our lives around the same issues at the same time. There's a power in unity. It's cool, about half of our small groups have been studying the booklet, and we've had a number of other small groups spring up to study the booklet, and people are downloading it, uh, the, the, the study guide on, on the website. And it's just good that we're throughout the week thinking about this stuff. God's done some cool things. Um, here's just a, a few testimonies. People have written in stuff that's gone on as a result of this. One guy wrote in and said, The Beautiful Mess, the, the Beautiful Mess series has been an eye-opening, spiritual walk-increasing, and God-inspired gift to me. Every day has been a chance for me to walk out to Scripture and see how messy my life was. And after I submitted 100% to Him and let God loose in my mess and quit trying to control everything, God has done wonderful things in me and through me and around me. Letting go and letting God. Uh, yeah, that's a key, key concept. A, a lady wrote in and said, This study's made a huge difference on me and my small group. And instead of ex- expecting the details of our messes to change, the Lord has been changing us and how we look at our messes. Personally, I've been learning so much on not being judgmental. This has been so freeing. And finally, another person wrote in, a guy, he said, because of the diligent prayers of our beautiful mess small group, I feel a peace and feel covered in the midst of life's craziness. Also, my son has been prayed for and I've seen results. Everyone in our group is new to each other. This is one of those groups that were just formed uh, for the purpose of the beautiful mess series. So they're new to each other, but they've been united as Christians in serious prayer the last couple times they've met, and they've met new friends, and they feel more connected. It's one of the reasons why we really stress the importance of small groups. A lot of times people say, you know, I just need to go to a small church where I can know everybody, and at a church this size, you can't. But the thing is, is that in any church over 100, you can't know everybody intimately, and we need to have relationships where people know us more than just as acquaintances. And that's the, the kingdom unit of the house church or the small group. And so we really hold that up as a value. But God's been doing some good things in this series, and we, and we thank God for it. Now we're going to bring it to a close. And believe it or not, the way I'm going to bring it to a close, God did some funky things with me about this message this week that I'll be sharing with you. And one of the funky things is the first passage I'm going to read is not from the book of Luke. <laughs> what? Heresy! Burn him now! <laughs> It's from uh, 1 Timothy. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. It's got itching ears. Anyone else get itchy ears? I, I mean, physically, literally. I, I do. I'm addicted to Q-tips. I all the time. I, I never go in the bathroom without grabbing a Q-tip. It's an addiction. I confess it. Uh, with a refuge group start, a, a, a support group for, for people who are addicted to Q-tips. Okay, so you get itchy ears and it feels so good to get in there and just ream out those ears. And doctors, I know, please, don't put anything smaller than your elbow in your ear. I've heard that before. I've tried the elbow. I can't get it up there enough. So, Well, people want to do that spiritually and they just want to hear things that they, it just feels good. Oh, ooh, that's so, ooh, that's nice. All right. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. We don't want this, do we? We don't want this, do we? 
Oh, good. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be up here sinking quick. Uh, I, we, we've had a covenant here at Wilderness Hills Church that um, uh, we're not going to be ear itchers and myth tellers. We're going to say it straight. I, I, the, my covenant is that I will shoot it straight as I feel uh, God has given it to us. And the covenant that I want from people is that you're not here to be entertained or have your ears tickled or, or, or anything else. We want to be confronted with the word. I will always promise you I will not inflict on you anything that hasn't been inflicted on me. <laughs> in fact, the way it usually works is that God at some point in the week as I'm working with a passage, and this is a case in point this week, slaps me upside of the, the side of the head, in love of course, uh, brings a lot of conviction onto my life, and then says, go thou and do likewise. <laughs> and you are the likewise. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, I'm just going to share here something that God has really raised up about this last passage that we're dealing with in uh, this series on the beautiful mess. I, I want to say this up front. I don't think it's possible for any of us to hear the message I'm going to give right now and not at some point feel conviction. But it should not be the case that anybody hears this message and feels condemnation. And here's the difference. Conviction is about what we do. Condemnation is about who we are. It's that shaming message, you are a fill-in-the-blank. You can do something about conviction. In fact, that's why it's there. Condemnation just locks you into what, where you're already at. Conviction is from God. Condemnation never is. There's there, no condemnation to them when you're in Christ Jesus. And so I want us to have open minds and open hearts to feel conviction. But I also want us to have the insight to not go into condemnation. Uh, as the Lord here hits us between the eyes with this message. I'm entitling this, Doing the Teachings of Jesus. Doing the Teachings of Jesus. And I want to say at the very start that there's an urgency to doing the teachings of Jesus that we'll see here in a moment. But we don't do the teachings of Jesus to get points from God, to get God to like us. Like if we just jump through enough hoops, we'll be his friend. Our Friendship with God, our worth before God, our life with God comes not because of anything that we do, but just because of who he has made us to be by dying for us on Calvary. Our worth and our value and our esteem and our security comes to us for free by grace by virtue of Calvary. But where that is real, where we really are getting our life from Christ, it results in doing some, some real doing. And Jesus is going to show us here that the doing is very, very important. It's not just an ornamental kind of thing. In fact, it is a test of authenticity. So he says this, uh, starting in verse 36. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for those who come to hear me and uh, hear my words and, and put them into practice, I'll show you what they're like. They're like this guy who built this house and dug down deep and laid a foundation on a rock. So when a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But those who hear my words and do not put them into practice are like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, on sand. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I pray for conviction and freedom from condemnation. I pray, Lord God, that you will use this word to confront us, to challenge us, to transform us, to build your kingdom inside of us in order to build your kingdom through us. 
Help us, Lord God, to do the thing which is maybe most difficult for us, and that is to be honest with ourselves. Holy Spirit, help us. Build your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here Jesus is coming to the close of his nice sermon on the plain. And every preacher likes to have a good closing, something to leave him with. Jesus leaves them with this clothing, uh, closing. Basically says, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do? Um, and then he gives this ominous warning. Are you going to put this into practice? Are you going to apply my teachings to your life? Or are you not? And you got to know this. There's a flood that's coming that will uh, determine whether or not you have been putting my teachings into practice or not. He ends with a bang. It's rather confrontational. The feel of it, it would be sort of like this. If I were to, as my final closing point in a sermon, say this. What are you going to do about it? Everything I just said here, are you going to go and do it, or are you just going like, to let it go in one ear and out the other? Uh, uh, is the hand clapping going to have any meaning whatsoever, uh, or is this actually going to cash out into your life? And you know what? Um, don't bother coming back if it didn't cash out this week. Unless you really did it, then don't come back. Woo! He's in their face. He's confrontational. Which is why this sermon is a confrontational message. Let's break it down. First, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I say? Uh, why does he repeat the word Lord there? Uh, why do you call me? It wouldn't have been enough for him to say, why do you call me Lord, and don't do the things that I say? What's with this repetition? And the answer is that in the first century, repetition was a, was a form of emphasis. Uh, it was an emphatic thing. So Jesus is saying, why do you emphatically call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? Um, uh, the picture I get is, is that there's this crowd here, a big crowd. Now Jesus' reputation is getting around. He's been doing some miracles. There's a lot of excitement. The people come out to hear him. They hear this wonderful sermon. They've seen the wonderful miracles. There's an electricity in the air. There's a movement being birthed. Man, you know, and they get caught up in this emotional crowd, and they're crying emphatically, Lord, Lord, you are the Lord. And Jesus, unlike a lot of modern preachers, I think, isn't at all impressed by that. Uh, yeah, it's nice to have a crowd. It's nice to have a religious buzz going on and people calling Lord, Lord, and seeing the miracles. That's all fine, well, and good. But it doesn't impress Jesus at all. What Jesus wants to know is, is any of this real? Is any of this real? If you're going to call me Lord, Lord, uh, and not do the teachings that I'm giving here, then... It has no meaning whatsoever. The easiest thing in the world, let us admit, it's the easiest thing in the first century and it's the easiest thing in the 21st century, is to get caught up in uh, excitement and get caught up maybe in music and to get caught up in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a religious buzz that's going on and to confess Jesus Christ is Lord and yet not have it translate into any difference in our life whatsoever. It's easy to do. Because words are easy, life is difficult. What Jesus is really saying here is this. To call me Lord and yet not have your life changed as a result of that is a contradiction in terms. It's a contradiction. Because the meaning of the word Lord is, I submit to you. That's what the word means. If it has any meaning at all, it means I submit to you. So if we call Jesus Lord and don't submit to him, we're both calling him Lord and then saying that he's not Lord. Our lips are saying one thing, but our life is saying something different. There's a contradiction going on there. Our confession is rendered meaningless, except insofar as we don't just say it, but we do it. It's a little bit like a, little bit like a guy that I uh, spoke with several years ago uh, who was 
uh, had a real control issue. He was paranoid and, and all sorts of issues. And uh, he'd been married for a year, and his poor wife was just like a slave in this house. And uh, the marriage was kind of, you know, becoming uh, disheveled. So I met with them. And what was happening is that this guy was calling to check up on his wife five, six, seven, ten times a day. Uh, sometimes calling her friends to make sure that she was where she said she was. Requiring his wife to call him several times throughout the day, like when she was leaving work. I want to know exactly when you were leaving work. And he knew it took 18 minutes to get home. I wanted to know what happened to that other minute if she didn't come on time. I mean, this lady was in prison. It was ugly. So I said to this guy, has your wife given you, in the one year you've been married, any reason at all not to trust her? And his response was, no, no, she's the most trustworthy person in the world. In fact, I do trust her. I love her and I trust her, and I know that you can't have any relationships that's not based on trust. So I said to him, well, then why are you calling to check on her six, seven, ten times a day? And his answer was, honestly, well, I'm just trying to make sure. I, I just want to make sure. You know, you never know. Well, I said, buddy, look at, uh, if that's what trust looks like, what would it look like if you didn't trust her? I'm just curious. If you were like paranoid for, uh, of her, for example, how would you act any different than what you're doing now? You say you trust her, but the meaning of the word trust means you don't check up on her 10 times a day and you don't require her to call. That's what the meaning of the word trust is. If, if there's no difference between trusting her and not trusting her in terms of your behavior, then your trust is meaningless. Well, what Jesus is getting at here is this. He says, you call me Lord. But that's not like a little magical you know, trick that you do that changes something magically. No, the, the meaning of your words is found in the life you put behind them. Uh, to, to call me Lord and mean it is to live a life where in fact I'm Lord. Where on a day-by-day -day basis, uh, it, it's reflected in how you actually live. There's a contradiction to the degree that we don't do that. Then Jesus gives us this analogy of two houses, one that's built on a foundation and one that's not. And the flood destroys the one that's not built on a foundation but doesn't touch the one that is. I initially kind of struggled with this because it almost, it almost looks like Jesus is here saying that we build our own foundation by obeying him. Like uh, uh, when we apply his teachings, we are digging our own foundation. It looks like that. But there's uh, so many other scriptures that seem to contradict that, that it leads me to suspect that that can't be the case. I mean, for example, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. There's one foundation, and his name is Jesus Christ. Our foundation, the solidity in our life, is in our good works. It's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, you know, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking stand. Uh, the rock is Jesus Christ. And so, Whatever Jesus is getting at here, I think it can't mean that we build our own foundation through our obedience. And as I wrestled with it, I, I, I kind of began to see this. That the house that's built with a foundation and the house that's built on shallow sand, they look the same. They, you couldn't tell which one is you know, authentic and well-built just by looking at it. Only when the flood comes... Is it revealed that in the case of one of them, appearances were deceiving? And I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Here's the crowd. They're gathered around him. They're all excited. They're crying, Lord, Lord, and all of this. What Jesus is saying is to the extent that 
uh, you're not living this out on a day-by-day basis to the extent that this is just verbal. You're deceiving yourself. You're kidding yourself. Uh, appearances are deceiving. Right now, you can't tell who's authentic and who's not. But in the case of those for whom there is no translation of this, of this profession of faith into their lives, they're kidding themselves. They're deceiving this, this themselves. They're caught in self-deception. His brother James says it very clearly when he says this in James chapter 1. He says, Do not merely listen to my word or to the word, and so deceive yourself. If you're just hearing the word and not doing it, you're deceiving yourself. That's why James adds, adds, do what it says. Do what it says. If you think the kingdom is about hearing a sermon, or if you think the kingdom is about reading the Bible, or if you think the kingdom is about coming together and and having an energetic uh, meeting, you're deceiving yourself. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is what happens as a result of this, if in fact it's authentic. How does it translate in the way that we treat our spouses and our kids and our neighbors tonight and then tomorrow? How does it change the way we live? It's a little bit like those who sometimes, some of us, uh, go out and we want to get fit because we're getting overweight, so we buy exercise equipment. And somehow you just feel healthier by virtue of having the exercise equipment. I've got a treadmill out on my porch. You know? Now, if you don't ever use it, it doesn't do you a bit of good. But you can get deceived into thinking that somehow you got a little healthier just by making the sacrifice of purchasing it. It doesn't work that way. Or what's a little closer to home for me is that I will sometimes, once in a while, I'm better at this now than I used to be, but I'll see a book either on Amazon.com or in a bookstore, and oh, it's like a juicy book, and there's, there's stuff there I want to get, and I, I just, you know, and I buy the book. No, part of me knows that I'm right now, my reading list is so overbooked, literally, that uh, I'll, I'm not going to get to this book, but somehow just buying it makes me feel like, like it's a part of me. I, I somehow got a little of the knowledge by virtue of having this book in my library. But it doesn't work like that. The book is worthless unless you read it. And the exercise equipment is worthless unless you actually use it. And church services and hearing sermons and reading the Bible and all the, uh, all the rest is utterly worthless unless it translates into a life that's actually making a change. Even calling Jesus Christ Lord, Jesus is saying here, is irrelevant unless it's backed up with a life. Because the kingdom of God is not about words, and it's not about excitement, and it's not about energy. It's about life. Are we living in a way that our life is a dome in which God is king, the kingdom of God, the king's dome? Is that happening or not? Even calling Jesus Christ Lord isn't a magical thing that gets you into the kingdom. The question is, is is there reality behind it? Now, someone here might be saying this. I'm sure someone here is saying this. Well, look at uh, here's what I've been taught, because this is what's taught a lot in America. I've been taught that in Romans 10, Paul says, if I believe with my, my heart and, and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, I shall be saved. And so I intellectually believe this is true, and I have made a confession of faith, uh, and so I am saved. And they usually mean by saved, I'm rescued from hell. That's kind of what the word saved has come to mean uh, to a certain degree in our culture. This, this, this uh, interpretation of this passage, where there's a magical power in saying something and intellectually believing something, um, it has, I think, been the main contributor to the fact that we have got a culture now where you've got millions upon millions of people who profess faith in Christ, but every study ever done on this shows that only for a fraction of them does it make any difference in their life. 
that on the whole, those who profess faith in Christ live the same way people who don't profess faith in Christ. Their values are basically the same. They make their decisions the same way. In other words, they have a profession of faith, but there's no reality to it. And it's because we've come to take a profound biblical teaching found in Romans. If you believe in your heart and and profess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. And we've turned it into, we've reduced it to, a magical formula. A magical formula. The word that's used for believe in Romans 10 and in other places in the New Testament is the word pistis. The word pistis is a covenantal term, like so so much of the terminology of the Bible. To have faith or to believe means You are trusting your other person that you're entering into a covenant with that they'll be faithful, and you're pledging your faithfulness to them. It's not intellectual belief. It's a pledge of commitment and a pledge of trust. I trust you, and you can trust me as we enter into this covenant together. And the word saved that's used there. See, Paul is saying if if, if we pledge our life, genuinely pledge our life uh, to, to Christ and trust Christ to uh, in, in terms of what his promises are to us, we shall be saved. But the biblical concept of salvation isn't, this, isn't rescue from hell. That's a consequence of the biblical concept of salvation. But the biblical concept of salvation, soteria, or in the Hebrew, shalom, it has to do with wholeness. It has to do with entering into the life of God. It has to enter into, it has to do with beginning to experience some of the empowerment of God and the reality of the Holy Spirit. It has to do with becoming the dome in which God reigns. And where that happens, it's going to bear fruit. There's going to be some evidence of it in, in a person's life. It's not this legal formula, bottom line deal, where I get to get, you know, my get out of hell card for free thing, but by virtue of something that I say with my mouth. It's talking about reality, as the Bible always does. When we enter into a covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ and pledge our faithfulness to him, we begin to enter into the life of God. And we become changed as a result of that. The idea of intellectually believing in Christ as Lord, but but not pledging your life, is not found anywhere in the New Testament, except one place. And that's with the demons. James says the demons, well, they believe Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, They know it. But they don't pledge their life to him. They don't, they don't, in fact, enthrone him as Lord over their life. They have a merely intellectual faith, which is why James says, what good is that? Actually, you could draw the conclusion that a merely intellectual faith that's kidding itself into thinking that it's real faith is actually a demonic faith because it's the kind of faith that demons have. Which is why James then goes on to say that faith without works is dead. Faith without works, if there's no evidence of it, then, then it's a vacuous thing. It's an empty thing. Uh, it's, it's really a nothing. And the person who thinks that it's a something is actually deceiving themselves. It'd be a little bit like this. Suppose there's two people who, who got married. They had a wedding time. And they gave their vows to one another for better or for worse, yada, yada, yada. And then that very night, they went out and started dating other people. And in fact, they acted like they were single. They acted just like they did before they got married. Uh, but they uh, said these vows. They dated other people. Maybe they slept around. They call one another, uh, you know, once a month, whatever, say how you're doing, but they don't live together. They're not doing life together. They're not, they're not becoming one. Uh, they're acting just like single people. Is that a real marriage? That's not a marriage. You're kidding yourself if you think that's a marriage. Look, at if being married and not being married look identical, then you don't have a marriage. Something's got to change if, in fact, you're married. 
You're kidding yourself if you think this is a marriage. Maybe you're doing it for legal tax purposes or who knows why you're doing it, but this ain't marriage. This is not what marriage is supposed to be. So also, when we profess with our lips Jesus Christ is Lord and yet there's absolutely no change in our life, we don't make him Lord over any particular moment in our life, over any particular day in our life, over any particular week or month or year or season of our life, then, then, then the word is actually just meaningless. It's vacuous. This, I believe, this message I'm giving right now cuts to the heart of a great deal, I think, of Americanized Christianity. I, I, I think this is one of the main things that the church in America is afflicted with, a bottom-line deal, legal kind of Christianity that has got no reality to it. Uh, here, here's what I think was going on is that we live in a culture that is, uh, as every sociologist who's ever analyzed American culture told us, it, it's a consumer culture. It's defined by consumerism. The, the, from the moment you're born, you're bombarded with a message that says you are a consuming unit. And so we tend to see the world as consuming units. We purchase things. That's what we do. We acquire things. It's what makes the American world go round. Now what happens if we're not careful, is that we can begin to see the gospel through the eyes of our consumerism. It gets defined by the culture. And when that happens, and it has happened to a great deal, the gospel becomes a product that we consume, that we purchase. We're the customer, and we always get it our way. And we're always looking for the best deal at the lowest price, right? That's just what it is to be a good consumer. And so the gospel then becomes sort of this product. It, it's it's a, a magical Jesus product. It's a magical Jesus product that will, that will purchase your fire insurance. And uh, the gospel is about you purchasing that. And the price is a great deal because all you got to do is intellectually assent to it and say it with your mouth and boom, you're in. What a great product. And the job of preachers like me, my job is to sell the product. That's what I'm, I'm pumping the product. I'm selling the Magical Jesus Rescue uh, Fire Insurance product. And my goal is to get as many happy, satisfied customers as possible. And when that happens, the church turns into this magical Jesus fire insurance product franchise. And the, and the various, you know, uh, franchises compete with each other because there's so many, so many customers to go around, by golly. And so we got to find ways to, of getting our little niche in the market. Some find a way to get a nice niche in the market by sweetening up the deal. It's not sweet enough already. So not only will you have fire insurance by, by, by uh, grabbing hold of this magical Jesus product, but you can be rich and you'll always be healthy even right now if you'll buy this product. And so they get a nice cool niche in the market. And as the franchises are competing with one another, whoever gets the biggest mega church selling the, 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 the best product and getting the most customers and keeping them happen, happy, well, they're looked up to sort of as the Walmart of the magical Jesus industry. And everyone claps their hands and says, yay. But it's got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Nothing. Zero. Zippo. Not yay. Nothing. This is, this is going on all over the place. And see, the unbelieving world looks at all that for being the, the capitalistic joke that it is, and they don't want much to do with it. That's not what Jesus came to earth and died for, uh, for that kind of a thing. And then, then we raise a whole generation of people, generations actually of people who've got itching ears. Because, the, the, you know, being a, being a consumer means you always get it your way. And if you don't get it your way at one place, you just go someplace where you can get it your way. Itch my ears, scratch my ears, a little to the left here. I kind of like it when you do this motion here in my ear, okay? When you just do that. And, and we have itching ears and we tell myths. And the greatest myth we tell is that Jesus is a product and you are the consumer. The truth is... Jesus is not a product, and you're not a consumer. Jesus Christ is Lord, and you and I are sinners, and Jesus isn't for sale. And we're in desperate need of him. That's the truth. The truth is that God's about reality, not just words. 
and professions. The truth is that Jesus Christ is real and the kingdom of God is all about reality and salvation is all about reality. And the truth is that we enter into the kingdom when we surrender to him, not just with our words, but when we really surrender to him. And the truth is that when we really surrender to him, it makes a difference in our life. When you surrender to Jesus Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. How can that not make a difference in your life? When you surrender to Jesus Christ, you're given a new nature. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. How can that not make a difference in your life? Now, I'll be the first one to say that it's not perfect and we have our old self and our old thought patterns and our old struggles and it's three steps forward and two steps back. We got that. So we cut each other a whole lot of grace and thank God that God is gracious. Still, if in fact you're seated with Christ in heavenly places, you're a friend of God, you're a child of God, you're a co-worker with God, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, the Spirit of God is flowing in you like a, like a river of living water, how can, that make, how can that not make a difference in our lives? There'll be some fruit that shows it. It's kind of like this. If you're at all alive, there'll be some kind of a heartbeat and some kind of a brainwave and some kind of a breath, Right? Uh, and, and if you're growing, that heartbeat will grow stronger and the breath will grow stronger and the brainwaves will grow stronger. If there's no signs of life, no breath, no heartbeat, no brain activity, well, I'm not, we're not to judge, but it looks dead. It looks dead. God calls us to reality. God calls us to reality. And so what Jesus is doing here at the end of his message is he's really saying this. Is this real? Is this real? He's saying... I'm giving you these teachings because I love you and because this is the right way to live. This is a better way of living than what you're doing now. This is how God intended life to be lived. There's wisdom, divine wisdom, in doing life this way. Yes, it's hard because the whole culture goes against it, but, but th this isn't pretend. This is real. Live this way, and when you do, you'll be making your life a dome in which God is king, and that's going to change everything. But see, if you go home and you just had a nice party and you heard the nice words and you clapped your hands and called me Lord, Lord, then it was all for nothing. It's worthless. And you may, it may, in, the, in the context of this crowd, it may, look, it may look great, but when the flood comes, it's not going to stand up to anything. Is this real? That's the question. Because God only deals in one commodity, and that's the commodity of reality. That's what this whole beautiful mess series has been about. Get real what's real. So, I want to now do something that's very, very real and that I've never done quite like this in the history of Woodland Hills Church. I'm going to use the next 12 minutes as a meditation for us to give the Holy Spirit a chance to show us what is and is not real. Um, I'm going to lead us in this meditation on the sermon on the plane because Jesus is giving these very confrontational words at the end of his sermon. And he's saying, are you going to do these teachings or not? So I want to review the whole sermon that we've been through the last six weeks. And, and I'll summarize units of teaching, and I just want to ask the question, are we doing this, or is this just words to us? And I want to ask, I want to ask us to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves. This is the most challenging thing for us to do, is to be honest. And let the Holy Spirit convict us. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, if the Holy Spirit convicts us, I encourage you to simply ask for forgiveness and then immediately receive forgiveness, because God's not into groveling, and then simply pledge to do life differently while asking him to show you what that looks like. You can close your eyes and pray as, uh, as, as we're going through this, or you can keep your eyes open. I'll put the relevant verses on the screen, but uh, uh, feel free to just close your eyes and not look at them if you want. We'll see here that Jesus repeats himself a lot because... Um, 
he's not into entertainment. He's into, he's into reality, and sometimes things need to be repeated. So he starts by saying in, in Luke chapter 6, and Holy Spirit, we're going to ask you now to come into our midst and be real to us and open up our minds and open up our hearts to be truthful. Jesus says in John or in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26, Consider yourself blessed when you're poor, hungry, sorrowful, or persecuted. And consider yourself in danger. There's a woe over you when you're rich, well-fed, full of levity, and popular. Have we done this? Are we doing this? Or have we merely heard it? Is this real to us? Are we who are rich, which by global standards is probably a majority of us who are hearing this message right now, are we who are rich careful to heed this warning and to not get life from our riches? Have I adjusted my lifestyle so I can generously share my wealth with the poor, feeding the hungry, comforting the sorrowful? Have I done that? Let me ask it this way. If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would my life look any different than it does now in terms of how I steward my resources? What actual difference is following Jesus making in my life? Holy Spirit, have your way. If the Holy Spirit convicts you on something, just ask for forgiveness, receive forgiveness, and pledge to living life differently. Have your way, Holy Spirit. Starting in verse 27, Jesus says, Never retaliate. Live with outrageous, reckless generosity, even to the point of lending to people without expecting them to return it. Hold on to nothing as though you owned it. Which is why he says, If someone steals your shirt, be ready to give them your coat also. Don't own anything. Love in a way that is ridiculous in the eyes of the world. Everybody loves their friends. Hardly anybody loves their enemies. That's what we're called to do. Be as merciful to others as your Father has been merciful to you. Have we done this? Are we doing this? Or have we merely heard it? Am I, in fact, a recklessly generous person? Help, help us, Holy Spirit, to be honest with ourselves. What percentage of my income goes to myself and my loved ones... And what goes to advancing the kingdom and feeding the hungry and caring for the poor? Do I take care to monitor how I, I steward God's money? Do I take care to discern God's will and how I steward God's money? Do I hold all my possessions with an open palm, ready and willing to give them away? Or do I cling to them in the normal American way? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. Do I love any differently than ordinary non-kingdom people? Do I really love my personal and national enemies? Do I truly agree with God that every Islamic terrorist has unsurpassable worth 
regardless of how I may feel about them? Do I follow the teachings of Jesus and pray for them and bless them despite their actions? Or do I curse them like an ordinary American? Help us to be honest, Holy Spirit. Do I do good to the person who gossips about me or do I gossip back? Do I forgive and pray for the father who abandoned me or perhaps the stepmother who abused me? Do I bless the neighbor who tries to make life miserable for me? If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would my life look different than it looks now in terms of what I think about my enemies, how I treat my enemies, how I interact with others? How is Jesus' teaching actually making a difference in my life? Holy Spirit, convict us when necessary. And when he does, just ask for forgiveness, receive forgiveness, and pledge to live differently. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus tells us never to judge others. We're to forgive all people for wrongs that were done to us. We're to live with outrageous generosity, he again says, trusting God's promise that he will meet our needs and that every sacrifice we make will come back on us in the form of a blessing. Have we done this? Are we doing this? Is this part of our life? Or have we merely heard it? Do I get all my life and worth and significance from what God thinks about me as evidenced on Calvary, or do I still try to get life by comparing and contrasting myself with others, noticing all the wrongs in their life uh, that I don't happen to have? Do I really trust God to meet my financial needs as I share my wealth with those in need? If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would my life look any different than it looks right now? What real difference is my calling Jesus Christ Lord Making in, and, uh, making in how I actually live my life on a day-by-day basis. How does calling Jesus Christ Lord affect the decisions I make on a day-by-day basis? Let the Spirit convict you. And if he does, ask and receive forgiveness and pledge to walk differently. In verses 39 through 41, Jesus said, Watch out for the blind leaders who get their life from the religion and from their followers. And he also adds that if we follow him, we're to expect to suffer because he suffered, and the student is supposed to be just like the trainer. Have we done this? Are we doing this? Or have we merely heard this? Am I careful to watch out for leaders who get life from their religion or from the people who follow them? And do I strive to live a life that's sacrificial like Jesus, and perhaps even suffering like Jesus? Or do I fall into the current of American lifestyle and try to live a life that's as free from inconvenience as possible? If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would my life look any different than it does now? How does following Jesus make a difference in my day-to-day living? Holy Spirit, convict us when necessary. And when he does, ask and receive forgiveness and pledge, promise, covenant to walk differently.
Then in verse 41 and 42, Jesus again taught, taught us, don't look for dust particles in, the others, in others' eyes, but become aware of the planks that are in our own. And as Seth brought out, he's saying, don't eat of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is judgment, but eat from the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we will bear good fruit instead of thorns. Have we done this? Are we doing this? Or have we merely heard it? Am I a humble person? Do I regard others' sins, whatever they may be, as being worse than my own? Am I humble in recognizing that my map is not the territory? Or do I assume that my way of looking at things is always the right way? Am I humble and gracious with those who see things differently from me, even on matters that are important to me? Am I getting all my life worth security and significance from Christ, or do I try to get it from thinking I'm always right? Is the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in my life, especially in relationship to those that I fundamentally disagree with? Is my life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, and self-control? Or is it characterized by mostly thorns that prick people and sometimes make other people bleed? If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would my attitude towards others look different than the way it looks right now? How is following Jesus actually impacting the way I relate to other people? Let the Holy Spirit convict, and when he does, simply ask for forgiveness, immediately receive forgiveness, and pledge to walk differently. Have your way, Holy Spirit. Do your work, Holy Spirit. Finally, this morning, we saw these passages where Jesus concludes his sermon by saying, don't just hear my teachings, do them. Make calling me Lord a reality in your life by living in obedience to my teaching on a day-to-day -day basis. Do we do this? Will we do this? Or have we merely heard it and tried to convince ourselves that somehow we've already arrived just by virtue of hearing it? Is my confession that Jesus is Lord real? Or is it just words? Is my life mission to not only hear Jesus' words, but to do them? Is my life being built on, the solid found, on a solid foundation? The solid foundation of the reality of Jesus Christ? Or is it being built on the shallow sand of religious words and a magical profession? A magical profession of faith. If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would my day-to-day -day life look different than it does now? How is following the radical Jesus making my life actually any different? Holy Spirit, convict. And where he convicts, simply ask for forgiveness, immediately receive forgiveness, and pledge to live differently. We want this to be real, Lord. The day of truth is coming. The day that exposes self-deception is coming. We want to be honest now, Lord, and to have a real foundation now. We're going to close with a prayer, but I want to say up front that if you're here 
this morning, and maybe as we've gone through this exercise, or maybe you already knew this, but you're really thinking that Jesus has not been Lord of your life, and you want to pledge your life to him and mean it. I encourage you to come forward as we're dismissed, and we'll have some prayer teams up here uh, who would love to explain to you how to do that. It's so simple. And, and then to pray with you, to make this a, a real thing. If God's dealing with you on some area, a conviction, the Holy Spirit zinged on certain points, and you're not yet complete with that, you've pledged to live differently, but it, you feel like you're not yet done, I would really encourage you not to go back out in the world just yet. Come up here and, and, and just gather around the altar and pray. And if you want to pray with our prayer teams, they'd be happy to pray with you. But as soon as you walk outside the door, your brain loops into all the ordinary stuff, and you can forget what God was doing. So feel free to linger and pray some. What I want to do is close with a corporate sort of prayer benediction that we're all going to pray together. So can we stand and just out loud, let's pray this prayer together. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have often been mere hearers of your word, not doers. We ask you to forgive us and help us make our profession of your lordship real on a day-to-day basis. Thank you for loving us despite our sin and shallowness. And thank you for empowering us to live as your disciples, manifesting your beautiful, sacrificial love to all people, regardless of whatever mess they might be in and regardless of the mess we might be in. For our lives, we confess, are often messy. And we thank you for loving us anyway. Go out, do the teachings of Jesus, build the kingdom of God. Amen. We love you.